Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Monday, January 22nd, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor Max. How's it going, my friend? I'm doing well. It always puts a smile on my face to hear the 3 2 1 and have you get into it, but it also put a bigger smile on my face to hear you do the 3 2 1 for a change. A little annoyed about the technical difficulties forcing that. Uh, yeah, it's almost February. I don't know. Weather point in the year, just get into the sports or whatever you're feeling. Yeah, we got about a foot of snow here in London over the weekend and it continues to hammer us right now. And there have been no outdoor rinks set up near my house. And I get the Facebook notifications of all the Soren Park rink updates back mm. home. Yeah. Uh, I got some severe FOMO right now because the rink looks great back in Toronto. And I don't know if I'll get to strap up the skates this year. I'd heard from my folks that it was probably like it had just gotten and there was warm weather incoming and it was oh. not going to last. Maybe that swung around. I mean, it's been cold here the last week, so it. I've seen photos of it being up and operational. I don't know to what extent or quality it is, but um, people have been using it, which is okay. which is pretty cool. And and by that, it it makes me jealous in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I like we had three years all like treasure forever, where it felt like December through March more often than not, we had like access to this rink, yeah, and just spent countless hours like that would be our entire day our entire weekend every day after school and that was that was like three years and then after that it never really felt like the outdoor ring without any art assistance was able to stick around yeah global warming for you something <laughs> all right weather uh turned out to be a factor in the football games this weekend as we jump into our football fan cave and the divisional round of the NFL playoffs. And again, working in chronological order here. It was a cold day in Baltimore as the Texans descended upwards from their indoor heated dome to the cold, cold uh, field in, in Maryland as, as the Ravens welcomed the Texans and uh, got punched in the mouth. I think that's what we saw out of these one seeds, the Ravens and the 49ers, was there was a little bit of rust they had to shake off in the first half of their games. And uh, it, it was a pretty defensive battle, which I think surprised a lot of folks. Baltimore's defense is always going to bring it, and they were probably the most impressive unit of the whole weekend out of anyone that played. Uh, but Baltimore's offense as well got stymied by this young and fast Texans defense. I think it was Christian Harris, uh, linebacker for Houston. They had him shadowing Lamar a lot of times, and he can run a 4.440. And so he was uh, being able to hang with with Lamar a little bit, and they they were able to get to him with a couple sacks. And Baltimore still hanging on to the lead, punts it away, and Houston gets the punt return touchdown to tie it up. And, and we thought from there, things were starting to look really shaky for Baltimore. They go into the half tied, and whatever Harbaugh said, it worked because the game was over after that. Ravens came out, mm -hmm. touchdown on the drive. Lamar Jackson runs it in, uh, and their defense takes over. The offense for Houston didn't score a touchdown in this game. And and it, the final score ends thirty one to ten with the Ravens really taking over in wow. that second half. Yeah, just pure domination on both sides of the ball. A much more physical team. Houston started to 
wear down with attrition and and when you get over 200 yards on the ground if you're the ravens you're going to have a ton of success and so a big win for lamar uh hasn't won a playoff game in a while and he's into the afc championship game which uh should be a thrilling one here is the first game next sunday uh but yeah just wanted to give the baltimore defense a shout out because they were awesome so no noticeable big shift in offensive game plan between first and second half like did the Texans just fall apart? I don't know if I'm X's and O's enough for that. Yeah. <laughs> but that, that just makes me curious, like what changed? Yeah, from my perspective, uh the Texans, I think there's a bit of attrition there with Christian Harris not being able to spy Lamar the same way. And the Ravens actually did a much better job running the ball with everyone except Lamar. First half looked like he was trying to generate a ton on the scramble, hold the ball a little bit too long. Uh, and really, when they started getting Justice Hill involved, Gus Edwards involved, uh, opened up their running game a little bit more, and they were getting chunk plays uh, as opposed to the first half. Nice. So yeah, great, great offense design there as as they take that win and and will host the AFC Championship game. Uh, similarly, on the other side, Green Bay, San Francisco, a seven six Niners lead at halftime with this Green Bay defense shocking the world and really putting the Niners on their heels. I think they were the better team in this game throughout most of it. Uh, defensively, very dominant, putting a lot of pressure on Purdy. And and with Debo Samuel going out after like six plays with an injury, it really limited the Niners' offense, and and they they found it harder to move the ball. And then Green Bay on the other side themselves had some great drives physically. Aaron Jones was a monster in this game, ran the ball really effectively. Jordan Love made a couple key throws, but they weren't able to complete the drives. They had. Uh, two field goals there uh and then a third one i think where they went uh they went for it on fourth down and didn't get it so just couldn't convert when they needed to in the red zone and the niners able to regroup at halftime and and came out and ran ran the ball a little bit better christian mccaffrey created a couple of plays and and he had two big touchdowns in this game uh, to take the lead both times but the packers were able to answer in a lot of the instances came back um, I believe was 21 to 17 for Green Bay at one point. And yeah, I believe it was 21 17. And uh, they lined up for a field goal at the 41 and missed it. Just a straight mm -hmm. miss in the rain. Anders Carlson couldn't convert. And, and that was it late in the fourth quarter. Purdy comes back the other way. It's a couple key passes, and Christian McCaffrey runs it in to take the lead. Packers are left with about a minute on the clock. Uh, I, I think they had two timeouts left. And on first and 10, after moving the chains, Jordan Love tried to get a little bit to Mahomes and uh, threw off-platform across the field, gets picked to end the game. Uh, he was awesome for most of the game, made a lot of good decisions, had a tipped interception as well. So ended up with two interceptions in the game. Uh, but you just know kind of his first year through the ringer looked really, really special. And ho you hope as a Packers fan that he grows and, and learns from that mistake. Whereas he could throw that out of bounds, um, stop the clock and get a reset on the play, but he tried to kind of create something magical. And this Niners defense is just too good to do that. So 
bit of a shaky win for the Niners. You could mark it up to rust. You could mark it up to the Samuel injury, uh, but not not the most convincing win we've ever seen. And they, they're lucky they, again, get to keep home field advantage as that one seed as they host Detroit next weekend. Uh, but it, it is... Uh, not uh, not as confident a win as I think people were expecting going into this game for San Francisco. Would you still call them like front runners or favorites for the Super Bowl, which I think you it sounds like they have been for most of the regular season? They're definitely the favorite to make it from the NFC side. Yeah. I would probably pick now after seeing that mm. either of the AFC teams that come through yeah. here. Yeah. All right. Detroit, Tampa Bay. Uh, another one that ended up closer, I think, than some people had expected, right? Tampa Bay has been pretty mediocre all season. Uh, they get a win over Philadelphia's Eagles team that seemingly had quit on their head coach at this point in the year. And uh, the Lions offense started out really well where they just couldn't be stopped. Jared Goff was was spreading the ball out. Sam Laporta had a massive game. Both rookies in this game were really, really special. Sam Laporta with a ton of receptions, and Jameer Gibbs was electric on the ground. Uh, and, and Tampa Bay had really struggled to generate anything until they just started going to the F it Mike Evans out there somewhere offense. And he went absolutely crazy in this game. I think he had 184 receiving yards, um, a couple of massive plays where he just beat Cam Sutton one-on-one -on, -one on the outside. And that's kind of how it went uh, back and forth where the Lions would create some offense. Tampa would respond with some crazy Mike Evans play and and hang around. And, and late, it comes down to another drive where Baker Mayfield has the ball driving to to tie the game in Detroit uh and potentially take the lead because or no it would have had to be to tie they were down eight and he throws a, a back-breaking interception just looked absolutely crushed after tossing yeah. it and the lions now double their playoff win total in the last 30 <laughs> years uh with another big win at home you got to be loving it and they'll be on their way to santa clara for the nfc championship game which is super super exciting for the folks here north of the border as well. We're about two hours from Detroit. So a lot of Lions fans here in London. Mm -hmm. I worry about them on the road now that they will be outside of the dome. But I mean, San Francisco is about as, as warm or as neutral a place you can go to uh, it, that isn't inside. Yeah. So um, not the worst place to travel to, but I do have concerns about the Lions kind of Jekyll and Hyde road home splits we get to our last game which i mean there's a okay. reason why it was the prime time slot right this is another fantastic episode in the mahomes allen rivalry however one-sided it might be in the playoffs the chiefs now three and zero against the bills i'd like to get go get credit i think i went four and zero on picks if we rewind the tape from last weekend so credit to me yeah um yeah, it's hard to bet against this Kansas City Chiefs team. They are in the AFC Championship game every year since Mahomes has become their quarterback. And it was another really, really fun game. Neither offense could be stopped in the first half. And, and Josh Allen created a ton with his legs, either by designed runs or by scrambles. And the Chiefs managed to get a big three quarters out of Travis Kelsey before his 
stamina started catching up to him just looks like he's a little bit older this year than any year previous and he gave him a superhuman effort in the first half and then really started to die out and they had to go to other options but the great thing that the Chiefs have this year that they haven't had in the past is Isaiah Pacheco really really electric on the ground and had some great plays and the Chiefs had it up three late after Buffalo turned it over and they hand off a jet sweep on the goal line to McCole Hardman. He fumbles the ball right at the one inch line, fumbles it out of the back of the end zone. Bills get just a saving grace of a turnover. So they get it at the 20 with the touchback starting going the other way with a chance to take the lead. And they move the ball decent enough. They get a big fourth down play to uh, Khalil Shakir. And he he makes it, and then Josh Allen, probably the play that everyone will remember from this game the most, looks off a wide-open underneath route to Diggs that probably would have picked up 12 yards, new first down. He gets out of bounds, stops the clock. Allen on third down shoots it deep for Shakir uh, and, and misses him in the end zone. And so it goes to fourth down, and they have to run a much more difficult fourth and nine play. They don't get it to convert. Kansas City stops, but or sorry, no, fourth down, they have to go to a field goal. Yeah. And they miss the field goal. And so just like the Packers, a, a haunting field goal miss in this weather, really a shocking miss from, from the range in the 40 yards, but an understandable one in this type of pressure, this type of weather. And the Bills could have at least made a closer field goal. I think either way, the Chiefs had so much time and all of their timeouts to go down and, and score a game-winning field goal. But big mistake from Allen, and he still can't get over the hump of this Patrick Mahomes. And uh, it, it feels a little Brady-Manning-ish from the early mid-2000s mid where Brady would just win every time, and Allen's just searching for that moment when he can finally beat this team. But uh, yeah, Buffalo had it in their hands at, as the home team and, and Kansas city was still able to pull something out. I, again, don't love the receivers. They're going to have a really hard time against Baltimore next week. Cause Baltimore is a team that can bully them. Uh, not a lot of teams are able to get pressure on Mahomes. The chiefs are really good at, at not taking sacks. If there's one team that can either create pressure through a variety of blitz packages or just be able to stop the run with their physicality, it's this Ravens defense. Mm -hmm. And so in that game, it really comes down to what Lamar can generate because you know Patrick Mahomes is going to create a couple plays, but Baltimore, for the most part, I think is going to limit Kansas City. It's can the Ravens score over 20 points against this Kansas City defense because Buffalo was only able to get to 24 after having a really uh, proficient first half. And so can Baltimore get over to 20? If they can, they win this game. I'm going with the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. Again, you can't pick against them until you see them lose, and they haven't lost anyone really except Cincinnati in the last six years. On the yeah, other side, um... I also have to go with the team that's been a staple and a winner in their conference now for a number of years. I think Sammy will be back and healthy, and the Lions had a had an offensive line injury. They're going on the road now. Uh, into San Francisco where they just won't have the same benefit on the defensive side of the ball as having that home crowd, which was really loud. And I think really 
provided a big boost to that team. They no longer have that. They're going into enemy territory, and I think the Niners are going to carve up this Lions defense. I could see it being a pretty high-scoring game, uh, but I do see us getting a rematch of of the Super Bowl from, I think, three years ago, the Niners and the Chiefs. Man, was it only three? That was Patrick Mahomes' first Super Bowl win. might have been four years yeah. ago. might yeah. have been the one right before the pandemic, actually. I think that's right. Yeah. I remember watching it in university. So crazy. Yeah. The before times. <laughs> so there are my picks for the Super Bowl here in AFC Championship weekend next weekend. Let us move on to the Australian Open Max. You got round two and round three coverage for us. Round two, round three, and round four as the quarterfinals kick off tonight, both on the men and women's side. I really tried to stream and not pay for a month just to watch this tournament which i thought i would also have to deal with commercials laptop breaking down i had to bite the bullet and i've got to say it's been a little nicer watching it on my couch um i wasn't working as much last week so as that has picked back up i am struggling a little and haven't seen as many of these matches as i would have liked but what i have seen has been fantastic tennis winding the clock all the way back to round two uh, one of those wake up and turn the australian open on mornings one of those wake up and hear about novak djokovic playing against someone playing above their level out of their mind serving and hitting the heck out of the ball uh, and djokovic looking a little flat a little unlike himself and somehow one more time i like had just enough doubts wondering what i was seeing uh, before I see Djokovic save a love 40 hold, uh, run it back around in a tie break, and then just w without a couple remarkable things here and there, but just like force of will, force of aura. It's not easy, but he makes it look easy and gets through against Papyron uh, that night. Then I watched the other world number one, Iga Sviatek, playing against Danielle Collins. Uh, watch Sviatek get off to a solid start, have Collins play incredibly inspired in the second, keep that momentum going in the third, go up 1-4, and that's why I decided to go to bed for work and wake up the next morning hearing about Iga's double break comeback to win that one 6-4. Uh, that morning, I also heard, uh, checked the score, and saw Elena Rybakina in a just starting a tie break. I check five minutes later, the tie break's still going. I check five minutes later, tie break's still going. I'm like at work basically. <laughs> it was still going. Uh, Blinkova takes out Rebakina 22 to 20 in the final set tie break, longest in WTA Grand Slam history. Um, and because that match goes on for so long, Daniel Medvedev has to start playing at 11 something Australian time. Uh, and he then drops the first two sets. So he, he was supposed to start playing around like 3, 4 a.m. our time. I got off work at 1 p.m. And that's around when Medvedev had won the five-set comeback. So a lot of drama in round two. Uh, moving on to round three. Quickly on the women's side, Iga loses after that fantastic comeback. Blinkova, who took out Rybakina in that crazy match, goes out. 
The seeds have just continued to drop on the WTA side. Sabalenka and Coco Goff have been the only two top seeds playing with the consistency and the dominance. It's a shame they're looking headed for the semis because that would be a really fun finals run back of the US Open finals. Uh, we'll get the, the previews in a minute. Not a lot more to say on the women's side. On the men's, I watched a lot of Sebastian Baez versus Yannick Sinner and was super impressed with Baez, the way he hit the ball with depth, um, how consistent he was. He had very few errors. I thought his movement looked great. His speed was fantastic. And none of that mattered. Yannick Sinner ran through him in under two hours, one of the most dominant Grand Slam performances I've ever seen against someone playing at Baez's level and just no there was a dip from Sinner but it was a dip from like remarkable extraordinary tennis to just remarkable tennis which was still good enough to get the job done in that third set Frenchman Adrian Manorino at 35 years old takes out Ben Shelton in his fifth or third straight five setter a big epic a lot of patience, a lot of sticking to the style and just grinding out the wind, drawing out the air is exactly what people are talking about when they say a veteran performance. Uh, Djokovic, one of his easier holds in round three. Okay, on to round four, the match I had been so looking forward and so dreading that I got back at a party at 3 a.m. to watch two hours of and then go to bed because I couldn't take it anymore. Andre Rublev beats Alex Dimonor in an amazing five-setter with both players just bringing a wonderfully high level um, and just daring each other to play bigger to adapt, to try and attack whatever seems to not be faltering at the moment, and to just keep the emotions and tensions held in check. Uh, Rublev does a great job coming out early. Dimonor storms back, almost gets back into the first set, but Rublev is able to break back after getting broken to take it. But then Demon really steps up his level from there in the second set. Uh, forces it to a tie break and just keep and, and just plays like slightly better gets a couple more errors that's around when i had to go to bed i wake i watch the highlights the next morning and just rublev after losing another heartbreaking tie break in the third set storms into that fourth set and just finds another gear of determination even if he completely burns himself out doing that like hardly able to walk by the fifth set um but whether through force of will or something else just has Dimonor pigeonholed enough into a corner to take that fifth set with a bagel so rublev continues to be the quarterfinal consistency king doesn't have to play the number one seed Novak Djokovic who has a terrible record he doesn't have to play Daniel Medvedev who he has a terrible record against he doesn't have to play Carlos Alcaraz who's so complete uh that even though they only have the one head-to-head -head, it's really hard to see Rublev pulling that one off he does have to play Yannick Sinner though who has been in top form all tournament the best form all tournament still has not dropped a set sinner disposes of a on-game uh dangerous and skilled karen kachinov again in straight sets 
Uh, he has just been hitting the ball so cleanly. His serving hasn't been incredible throughout matches, but it's been incredible whenever he needs it, whenever the break points he has to defend have come up. The forehand, the backhand have both the forehand has been monstrous. The backhand has given no one anything to complain about. The movement, the touch at the net, the errors have been low from Sinner. This match is this quarterfinals match is happening at like 4 a.m. our time. I'm really considering setting an alarm for 5 a.m. just to see how it go and trying to see how it goes. Uh, really hopeful for it. I think it's Rublev's best shot in a while, but Sinner's been the player of the tournament. I think it should be an amazing match because Rublev has also been playing quite well after having that fire lit under him in the first round. Uh, Novak Djokovic able to take out an exhausted old man Manorino after those three straight five setters um, it's just hard when you're someone like Manorino without a huge game where you rely on patience resilience being able to out rally out grind when you go up against someone who just does all those things better uh, two straight bagels before Djokovic the tension of the match kind of made Djokovic hope to lose a game. Uh, takes the third set, 6-3. Not a lot or drama outside of the gameplay in that one. A good match, but not a lot of suspense there. He will play Taylor Fritz in the quarterfinals, who he has never lost to. Fritz earning his ticket by beating Pass in a pretty impressive, inspired performance. Uh, I think... If anything, people surprised Tsitsipas made it that far. We're maybe expecting the early upset, so Tsitsipas will drop in points, losing his finals position. Um, with Fritz, it's just he's been here so many times. You've got to think the mental demons are high. I'm always afraid to sound too confident. They're playing in about three, four hours from this time of recording, but I, I've seen these guys play three times, and it's just really hard to... Imagine that without an injury or something, Hertz can get it done. On the bottom half of the uh, quarterfinals matchups, we're going to have Carlos Alcaraz play Alexander Zavera. This open. Um, Zverev has been serve-bodying his way through tough matches. He has the longest on-court time out of anyone in the... Uh, quarterfinals uh, it seems like a pretty easy pick for Alcaraz especially after how their U.S. Open match went uh, Alcaraz if Sinner has been the best player of the tournament Alcaraz has a really strong case for number two I think that crazy hype after Wimbledon after being the favorite to win the French coming off that U.S. Open uh, he he loses to Medvedev at the U.S. Open. He doesn't do too well at the ATP Finals. The hype has been lower on him, like at a realistic level for a 20-year-old. I think not being the complete star of center stage is probably a benefit for him right now. He has still been as flashy, as showy, as athletic, and dominant as ever, just less writing about it in the media. Um... But it, 
just one or two matches away from having that hype go right back up there. I'm expecting him to beat Zverev, and I'm expecting Medvedev to beat Hercatch as Hercatch's biggest strength. Um, foils right, his serve is just something Medvedev has made a career out of neutralizing. Uh, Medvedev has been up and down with his level at times this tournament. Um, but man, I like the Alcaraz Medvedev, like all the top four players, just like Medvedev, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Sinner, have a really fascinating rivalry against each one of each other right now. And anytime you can get those matchups, it's awesome, especially at the Grand Slam level. Um, they haven't played at the Australian yet. It's I don't know if it favors Medvedev. The slightly higher balance might give him like take a little off Alcaraz's drop shot and give Medvedev a slightly better chance returning those serves. Um, but the serve and volley Alcaraz has just gives him almost automatic points when he wants them against Medvedev. And Medvedev has to play so well to force seeds of doubt into Alcaraz like he did at the US Open and start forcing the unforced errors, really hoping that's the semifinal. Um, and then, yeah, we'll Djokovic Sinner would will be the likely semifinal on the other side, which also has some great history. And with Sinner's two wins over Djokovic coming late in the season, that gets really interesting. But Djokovic's Wimbledon wins over Sinner, especially that one two years ago where he came back from being down two sets to love. Um it's the Fifth time I think I saw in Australian Open history that the final eight have all been in the top 12 seeds. I'm predicting the top four seeds uh, are the, the final four players in the semifinals. And at that point, there are no bad finals matchups. So it's been a fantastic Open so far. All the high-level players means it should be a really fun conclusion. I'm looking forward to talking about it next week. Fantastic. We've got about 10 minutes left to talk basketball here. Uh, I think we'll start with the biggest news of the past week after we uh, got off a couple days later. It finally came through. And let me start by saying uh, how sad I am and mm -hmm. and the emotions, right, of of the end of an era. And... While OG was hurt during the championship run for the Raptors, it, it is it's Pascal who's really the last true contributing piece to that team, uh, who was left behind and has now been traded and probably isn't coming back, but who knows? Um the Raptors going in a fresh new direction and and it had been a couple weeks where everyone knew this was coming. Uh, it just came down to the the final logistics and who could offer the best package. And in the end, it was the Indiana Pacers. And the Raptors get Bruce Brown, Jordan Nwora, three first-round picks, and they actually somehow swing Kira Lewis as well um, in, in that trade as well from New Orleans, who gives away a second-round pick and Kira Lewis in exchange to just get a trade exception. So a bit of an interesting move there by the Pelicans that I think went unnoticed. But Siakam leaves. Uh, you get a plethora of players and picks coming back 
Um, the 24 picks was, I believe, the Pacers pick, and then the worst of Houston, LA Clippers, and OKC or something like that. And yeah, I mean, all those teams are kind of hanging around the playoff picture, so it won't be a very high pick, which is unfortunate, and neither will Indiana's. But they do get the three first-round picks that at least one of the players was supposed to generate, and and I guess this is the complementary trade to getting a couple of younger players that will play for you now in RJ and quickly. Um, but I kind of grade this trade overall across the board for both teams as a lose-lose, and I don't know if I'm in the majority of that camp, but the Raptors, I think I would have preferred them to try and get a young piece for Siakam, whether that's, say, Jonathan Kaminga or a Moses Moody or a Benedict Matherin, an Andrew Demhard, a... Yeah, I, those are kind of the main names from the main people who are rumored to be in the deal. Uh, and they missed on those. Bruce Brown is not a long-term piece for this team. Jordan Nwora has bounced around. He's not going to play significant minutes for you. Kira Lewis is the guy who could have upside, but it, it's already shown that he can't really fit with the team yet um, and, and just basically got played way out of the rotation by Jose Alvarado in, in New Orleans. So you don't really get any playable material, and then it's a, it's a crapshoot. And the Raptors' picks record has not been great lately. And so I'm I'm not confident yeah. on what they can get out of this trade for Pascal. The bright spot in it is that you get something instead of nothing when he probably leaves some free agency to pursue a contender. But it's it's tough. It's a tough one to swallow. Um, not my favorite package back that they could have gotten. Uh, but we'll we'll see where it goes from here. It really opens up Scotty Barnes to put up all of the useless stats the rest of the season. And then on Indiana's side, it, it feels a little Gobertish is one of the articles that I saw where it's a really promising, exciting young team that has a guy who's truly emerging as a top 20, top 15 player in Tyrese Halliburton. And you put together a lot of your draft capital, not necessarily any significant young players going back the other way. So you still have a couple of those guys to potentially move if you want to get someone else. Uh, and you go and get a guy who is at the peak of his powers, really complimentary fit to this team, and and will help them in the long run. But you're going to have to pay him a max contract to retain him at the end of the year. And you're paying a max contract to an asset that this might be his best year, like his last best year. He'll still be good the next couple of years, but it will be decreasing in value and his he just doesn't fit the same window as the t as the, as the one that the pacers have right now and so from a fun and win perspective i get it i mean they're zero and two since the trade so we'll see how it continues to go but uh, i just i don't know if the fit makes sense basketball wise i don't know if the fit makes sense window wise uh, and so i actually grade this as a loss potentially for both teams There's a couple things that make this heartbreaking. The official end of the championship era, as you said. The admission that this team 
everything we've done in the last few years has gone the wrong direction and it is time to tear it back down and try and start the slow process of building back up in a league that is awash with talent right now. A step backwards is just hard to swallow. The fact that the draft picks we get are most likely going to be between the 20 and 30 mark, and the fact that we might have a top 10 pick and then have to give it up this year. Um, and lastly, how much Pascal Siakam loved Toronto. I, I think that's the only part I would quibble with on you is that like we did not absolutely have to give up Siakam. Um, I don't think he was definitely going to walk away to sign with a contender because he wanted to win. He wanted to stay in Toronto. The Players' Tribune article he wrote, I recommend everyone read. It was incredibly touching and made me more proud of Toronto as a city than anything I've read or seen in quite a while. Um, and it makes me like that. This is where he's coming back to. This is where he's laid down his roots. And so many markets, so many teams struggle with establishing that kind of relation with a player and uh, truly selling them on the city. And we were able to with Pascal, which feels really special. Um, I do completely agree with, I hadn't thought about it that way, that the fit makes a lot of sense and that Halliburton is a player who makes everyone better. Siakam is a player who can do a lot of different things, has enough jackknife qualities that he will certainly find a role and way to add value. I don't know how long that window goes. Um, if the Pacers, I, I do think they have to offer him the max. I don't, with the second, with so much of their talent drafted and so many other players, I think they can weather that financially, but it might put them ahead of schedule and have to start dealing with second apron penalties before they are a second apron team. We've seen several teams kind of flare up in the East and then wane back down. The Cavs would be a good example of what the last year of what the Pacers are doing this year. And we've seen how the Cavs have regressed this year. I don't think they give up that much in terms of the draft capital. Um, so if, if they can avoid that regression and stay a top five team in the East for the next three years, I think this was a great trade for the Pacers. And I do worry about the Raptors' recent history with draft picks and whether they'll be able to really make use of them. Um, we have this confidence from the way Siakam and OG had developed, but in recent years there hasn't been anything to justify that confidence. But, as always, time will tell. Um, maybe someday soon we'll get to the ref rant that's been brewing, but I think today is not the day, and we're just approaching the 40-minute mark. So this will be the time we thank everyone for listening. I log off and say till next week, Sports Next Door, signing out. You get to the station, there's this crazy sound. Hey man, this ain't no fishing town. Yeah, they're fishing, but that ain't all. They're all listening.
Take it.